0: any physical injury has some psychological component, and any psychological injury has some physical component. The extent of those components can vary from individual to individual.
1: This is Intelligent Rebellion. Howdy, 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 folks. My name is Ria Mercado and I am your host. Today on this episode, we have Angelo Ratnachandra, who is a father, a husband, and the founder of Beyond Pain. Ange and I have a really fun chat about challenging expectations as treatment providers, also what the role of guidelines is. Most interestingly, I ask Ange about the best way to approach sex and intimacy with my patients. So sit back, relax. This is Angelo Ratnachandra. Hey, Edge, thank you so much for joining me here at the Intelligent Rebellion Podcast. How are you going?
0: Yeah, good, good.
1: Yeah, I found you because back in many years ago you did a course about beyond pain which is your awesome book and um just as we spoke then i was telling you how i stole your life triad thing um but i very much give (laughs) you credit. i I very much give you credit for it so i I reference your life triad thing i think as well do you want to just give us your like tinder profile like introduce yourself to the world
0: (laughs) definitely don't have a tinder profile (laughs) um especially because my wife's in the next room um (laughs) 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 Um, but um, my name is Andrew I've been a physio for about 20 years working in the space of chronic illness predominantly pain fatigue mental health more recently working in the space of long COVID but yeah I've got a counseling background as well and And I worked in this space for a long time. And i got a real passion about the psychology of being a human, as well as the physical aspects. Um, Worked across different fields of physio, occupational rehab, chronic illness, and trying to develop concepts and ideas that we could utilize in everyday settings to make us all better therapists, I guess. I do have an organization called Beyond Pain, which is the name of my book. And we have a team of really great people who really value what they do. And I'm very fortunate to have a team that also have a lot of lived experience with either themselves or significant others with chronic illness, which really helps us connect with the type of clients that we have.
1: And outside of the workspace, Ange, who are you?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm a great dad, probably the best dad in the world. <laughs> a great husband, probably the best husband in the world. <laughs> Love the outdoors. I, I like to do some stand up paddle boarding.
1: The opening quote of your book, and is, it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. How did you learn in the space of chronic pain management?
0: Uh, that's a really good question. I think it's, um, it was always exposed to me as a therapist. You know, I worked in prior practice and and you often see people, some people get better and other people don't. And you're using the same sort of principles for the same condition. And you just explore why do some people get better and some people don't. For me, that journey took me to working as a physio, which is quite rare in mental health mm-hmm. uh, in the UK. I had a fascination around chronic pain and, and how do we overcome that as a physical therapist per se. And so I ended up, working in an internationally renowned pain clinic in the UK where you know we worked so closely with the psychologists the nurses and it was a true interdisciplinary type approach and we were getting change we were getting we were getting really great outcomes we were helping people who were coming in desperate and they were leaving the clinic feeling great they still had their pain but they felt they got their life back but then I had my own personal journey through <laughs> chronic pain I guess that's where my lived experience come in um it was uh, it was the 23rd of June 2006 it was a Friday. Friday. Friday night, I was sitting at home watching TV uh, in my living room and someone broke the living room window and threw a Molotov cocktail at my head. They got the wrong house. It was meant to be the house two doors down. It deflected off my arm, hit the back wall, and it smashed. I got shot in petrol, and I was set alight. So, yeah, so for about a, uh, a week, I was in an intensive burns unit, and mm-hmm. then I had outpatients for about three to five months, where three times a week I had to go in to get my dressings changed, cortisone injections, you know, morphine injections, so on and so forth, just for the pain relief and things like that. It sort of opened my eyes as a sufferer of chronic pain. Certainly, I had some other personal sort of situations. Uh, Eight months prior to that, I had a spontaneous pneumothorax, which is called a collapsed lung, and I was in hospital for five weeks. They had to do life-saving lung surgery. I think that journey kept me up to saying what what life is like with a chronic illness. And then I thought, you know what, we we still preach about setting goals as Mm -hmm. clinicians and we encourage people to achieve what they want to achieve. And I thought, you know what, as a kid, I wanted to really trek the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. And so, um, In 2010, my wife, Finn, and I, we did Everest Base Camp when the doctor said, you won't be able to do it because of your collapsed lung. You won't be able to do it because of your chronic pain. (laughs) I was like, sod it. I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) And let's give it a crack.
1: (laughs) That's so fascinating to me because, as you said, You've you've worked with lots of different people and there are lots of factors involved in someone's like capacity to be able to recover and deal with chronic pain. What is it about you and your either personal attributes or your skill set? Or or what do you think upon reflection was it that you went, you know what, I've had all these things happen, I've had a collapsed lung, of cocktail thrown at me, but fuck it. I'm gonna prove everybody wrong. I'm gonna go climb the Himalayas. What is it about I you, think- Ange? <laughs>
0: I don't know, but I always put it down to maybe my upbringing. I was uh, my dad, my mum's a Buddhist, my dad's Catholic, but we mm-hmm. always grew up near the temples. So yeah, the Buddhist philosophy is essentially shit happens, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so you just gotta you just gotta really move on with life and make the most of it because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Whatever the cards you dealt is a cards you dealt. So and that was it. You know, I, I think I just took sort of that attitude, and personally, it was an opportunity for me to say, "Am I spinning?" when I'm telling my clients that ah, they've got to do this, this, this. Mm-hmm. So it was a real test for me to say, well, I need to walk the talk and this was an opportunity for me to walk the talk. Literally. You don't obviously <laughs> have to do the extreme. Yeah, you don't have <laughs> to do the extremes is what I did. But for me, I would, always would have been, oh, what if, what if, what if. Mm-hmm. I didn't want that to happen.
1: And in your experience of um, both being effectively a patient and also a clinician how much do you think someone's you know experience beliefs upbringing all those other factors actually play a role in their recovery is that something that you think should we place more emphasis on or not? I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
0: I think we do. I think it's something that we always overlook. I run a workshop around empowering conversations and in that we look at someone's upbringing was with the parenting styles they were exposed Mm -hmm. to because that that sort of um, creates and morphs your communication style with other adults and things like that as well, as much as we hate to say it. But your Mm -hmm. environment is certainly a significant component to who you are.
1: And I think that that's that question. Why, if it was the same pathology physically, then how come these two people are not following the same trajectory of recovery? Why is one person taking longer than the other? How do you then, especially in, in combo and in any of sort of personal injury or rehab where we are sort of governed by a very particular set of rules as to what we can and can't treat, how do you do it? How do you address those potential factors of childhood trauma, um, environmental factors? Because we always go on about biopsychosocial, right? A lot of people do it not well, but you do it extremely well. How do you get around the governance and the guidance of only treat the shoulder?
0: One of my other favorite quotes, and it's also in the book, is Aristotle who said 2,000 years ago, treatment of the part should never be attempted without the treatment of the whole. That's the error of our ways, the separation Mm -hmm. of the body from the soul. And he's talking about the, biopsychosocial approach. And I think we need to recognize that any physical injury has some psychological component and any psychological injury has some physical component. Mm -hmm. The extent of those components can vary from individual to individual. Mm -hmm. And so by just targeting a shoulder, you might be physically improving something, but if that person is still scared to move that shoulder, they're not going to move it, which means they're physically deconditioning the shoulder anyway. So then it's like, well, do you fix the shoulder or do they Fix, fix their concerns and their fears because it's the chicken or the egg situation then. And I think having an understanding of that is really, really important. And all the, the recommendations from the schemes and the guidelines, and all, they're just that, they're just guidelines. But everyone's an individual. You just follow the guideline, but know that there's got to be some variation. There's got to be gray areas. You know, a lot of people when they come and see me in a clinical setting, they're surprised. Oh, you aren't you a physio? Aren't you supposed to put your hands on? <laughs> but that's society's perception of what we do for pain management. And mm-hmm. you're like, well, if you've already done hands-on and it hasn't worked, why would I waste your time doing that? <laughs> Let's look at a different way. That's sort of the approach we take. So... I might be going off on a tangent, but I think education is a real important part. Knowledge is power. I know it's a cliche, Mm -hmm. but it's knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. Um, Today, I had a gentleman in clinic. He was an an addict, but he was there for his shoulder issues and he was wondering why his medications weren't working. And so I sat down, explained to him where all the structures were, explained to him why Mm -hmm. he can carry something like a bag of shopping, but he can't lift his hand overhead, buy mechanics of it, and then explain why in terms of his addiction issues, why that might be contributing to the fact that his medication is not helping. And he was like, no one's ever done this. And we spent the whole session just that, didn't put my hands on him. Mm -hmm. And he walked away thanking me. And he's like, I want to come back and see you because no one else seems to understand what you just explained to me. One of my workshops I talk about in your shoes Mm -hmm. or in their shoes. It's about you trying to put yourself in their shoes and saying, what would I want to hear to change my ways? (laughs) Because that's (laughs) essentially what you're trying to do, right?
1: I could almost hear the collective Gasp of lots of people going, wait a second, he's there to get treatment for the shoulder, but you're sitting there doing education and speaking to him about medications. And and I love that you've just said that out loud, because it almost gives people permission to really address the biopsychosocial approach. But as you mentioned, the expectation of a physio or an exercise physiologist, or somebody is very physical. So where in your journey did you come to the realization that you could do that? And that is actually within scheme and guidelines and acceptable.
0: I think when I was working as a junior physio in clinical practice, that's that's what triggered my curiosity. You see, you do the hands-on, you do mm-hmm. the TANS, you, you, the interventions, but there's one group got really well and the other group just didn't. It wasn't my technique. I was pretty confident with my technique. So what was it? <laughs> um, all those ones where the scans are coming back normal, but they are still got all these conditions mm. and symptoms that I think that, generated the curiosity and then having the experience working in mental health and in pain management in a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary team Mm -hmm. um, that really consolidated my confidence to say you know what my sessions don't have to be hands-on I don't have to validate myself as a physio by just doing hands-on and I was able to prove that and like I explained to you earlier Mm -hmm. if I can fix that shoulder but he's still scared to move that shoulder have I really fixed the shoulder because it's going to, how do I know if I fixed the shoulder or not? Because he's not going to use it.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think does that also come down to, you know, the question of scope of practice, you know, you and I are about the same age. And so as we journey through our career, but also through life, we start to realize where the rules aren't, does that does that make sense? Like I think we we often think that there are these these guardrails, but the more we explore, the more we realize just how far away these guardrails are. Um, yeah, and I think
0: you described it really well. I think the guidelines are the guardrails. You know, yeah. it just allows you to start somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It allows you to do something that's within your spectrum of your skill set if you're unsure. Yeah. But if you have the confidence, and by no stretch of the imagination, where You know, I'm not saying I'm a psychologist or I want to take that role yeah but a lot of physios will agree with me that most of their sessions there is an element of building rapport the client debriefing and you're almost being like a counselor Mm -hmm. and and a, a year to listen to because that's part of the rehab and the treatment strategy
1: there was something that you said earlier and which piqued my interest a little bit you mentioned multidisciplinary and then you corrected yourself and said interdisciplinary yeah what's the difference
0: well, a multidisciplinary team where you've got different professions, but they have their own goals. So the mm-hmm. OT's got the OT goals, the physio's got the physio goals, the doctors' got them, or the nurses' got the medical goals, the psych's got their goals. An interdisciplinary team is where you have common goals. So it's pa- patient centered or client centered more. And that's where the life triad comes in. You identify the, uh, the client's goals, and then your team works towards that. An interdisciplinary uh, practitioner or a consultant is someone who's got cross skills that mm-hmm. able to know their boundaries, but able to address things that's outside of their primary skill set confidently. We, we definitely need to move towards more interdisciplinary approaches because that's what's required.
1: And how do you suggest our industry does that? How do we all become these interdisciplinary? I said that really wrong, but you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. How do we all become I, I, interdisciplinary?
0: You know, it's not for everyone. I think mm-hmm. it's for those people who want to look at a more holistic approach. Some people mm-hmm. want to be specialist in certain areas, and which is completely fine and we need that. But I think for those people just looking at other sort of training opportunities that might actually complement what they're trying to do and it aligns with their values as a practitioner for them come to some of my workshops like the empowering conversation stuff which gives you those sort of skills you might do a motivational interviewing course or something like that if if that would help but looking at okay where else do you want to improve on mm-hmm. outside of your bread and butter um, yeah. and i think that's where you become a, a true interdisciplinary consultant
1: i, I want to sort of move back to your experience as both a patient and a clinician. Was there anything that you you particularly learnt as a patient and you've gone, oh, shit, I've been doing that as a clinician and now as a patient, I have to reframe that?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, sometimes you try and flog a dead horse as a clinician, don't you, especially in the (laughs) early days. I'm a bit better now. So um, (laughs) I think as therapists, what we do is we try and fix things. (laughs) and physical therapists anyway in particular that's the first thing to recognize for me I think is to say you know it's okay that it's shit (laughs) Uh, um, for this person it's pretty reasonable and Mm -hmm. we just need to see what we can do to help support them and you don't have to fix it and you're not a bad person if you don't fix it
1: does that contribute to attrition rates and burnout within healthcare? This notion that we're superheroes, miracle workers, hey, we're going to fix everything. Like, What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I think so. One of the most important lessons, and it's not to come across as arrogant, but I certainly tell my team is that whoever clients that come our way are lucky to have us because we're trying to help them with integrity and and honesty Mm -hmm. and empathy that we're trying to do the right thing. And so that doesn't mean we're going to fix them all or cure them off their condition, but the fact that they're going to get exposed to our team is a positive thing for them. And, yeah. and so we do the best we can.
1: Yeah. And I don't, think that, I don't think that's arrogant at all. I think it's truly understanding where you fit and what your very particular skill sets are. And I speak a lot about the race to ethical practice, which is you have to know when to... It's, I think quitting and giving up are two separate things. You need to know when to quit that patient, but you're not giving up on them because you might refer them on to somebody else who has a better skill set. In that case, where are you seeing the problems or the gaps or the holes that we have in the industry in your space, particularly chronic pain? I don't think it's very well understood or very well
0: done. I think there's a lot of over-treatment and it's in genuineness. I think in most cases, it's not about making the money, but it's more about, oh, well, at least if I can give them five minutes of relief, it's something, so I'll keep massaging them Um, or something along those lines, you know. But the problem is is that then you develop what we call learned helplessness. That client then relies on you for relief, Mm -hmm. which means that then they're going to more often than not not go on a holiday because they don't want to miss out on their physio or, or whatever else so then we're creating another problem mm-hmm. so I think it's better to advise them to say listen this is a temporary measure but long term we need to look at some strategies to help you so mm-hmm. that once I give you a massage then what can you do to maintain the benefits of that massage longer term
1: it's intriguing that you called it learned helplessness I've, I've never looked at it that way I've always seen it as just a dependency but for you to use it's Seligman isn't it with the learned helplessness in the and the dog study. And yep. I want to unpack that a little bit more. How have you seen that that can be dangerous? And then what type of things do you particularly put into place to try to make sure that that doesn't happen in your practice?
0: We, we set the expectation from the very beginning. I think it's really important. Um, and I think taking your outcome measures to show the difference. So you, It's not just you, you're, you're demonstrating to the client. If, if they're after you know X number of treatments, their shoulders know better, for example, mm-hmm. then that treatment's got to change and if you can't offer a different treatment that might work, then you've got to refer them on. So there's actual evidence there. The test for the practitioner, I guess, in a way is saying, you know, if you were going to a, to someone, would you keep going to them and paying them the money if you weren't getting better? What would you need to see for you to be happy that you're making gains out of the treatment? Um, you're not going to take a car to a mechanic and you're still having issues with the car, are you? You're gonna that, change. That,
1: that's an interesting point because I often ask people that I work with, so the injured workers that I'm consulting with is, hey, if you're telling me it's not working and if you were paying for this, would you keep going? And I don't know, disappointments. Disappointingly, the answer usually is yes, I would. And and I asked, well, why is that? The, The answer usually is, oh, because my doctor or my physio keeps telling me to keep going. So yeah. where does the responsibility lie in that case, and 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 do we need to be better?
0: <laughs> I think we definitely need to be. I think um, it's not about pointing fingers or putting blame, but that physio and those treaters need to then reflect on their own practices. We mm-hmm. we work in a in an era of evidence based best practice. We we've got clinical frameworks to work within, and it often looks at transitioning to self management, empowering the client, looking at goal focused approach. Uh, repeated measures to see how effectiveness of your current treatment, I think it's the word effectiveness is the word you're looking for. Yes, it can take many definitions, but essentially, what does effectiveness mean? They will say the physiotomy to keep coming, but then you've got to say, well, if it's not improving, how is it going to change then? Mm-hmm. It's a case of making sure you teach them all the strategies that you think you, they need to manage it, and then saying the frequency of treatment we're having is not required at this point in time, your symptoms may have plateaued or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to now look at how do we teach you to manage it the best you can. For me, uh, as a clinician, and uh, what I do now, fixing is not curing. Fix doesn't equal cure. Fix equals empowering. I think I talk about the conditional pain versus the struggle. We might not be able to fix the pain, but we should be able to address the struggle.
1: I actually had a case many years ago. So this case was about this gentleman who had managed to spill caustic soda, which is like acid all over his groin just basically on his penis. And um, I was sitting in a case conference with him and the doctor. And he said, Oh, look, I was with, with my, my wife. And this was during the injury and I just I was, I just really wanted to have sex and so he drank he was like I drank like a bottle of wine so it would feel it wouldn't feel so bad and I tried it and it was really sore the next day and it was probably the first time in in my professional career that I was sort of confronted with that and I was I was probably only five or six years into my career I thought oh oh my gosh like okay part of your book actually addresses those relationships and I think it's something that again it comes with confidence and experience to be able to address that because I remember the first thing that came out of my mouth when he said that was did the doctor give you medical clearance and, and like and I look back at that and I think that's such a rehab consultant question to ask because it's a it's a physical activity related to his injury and you're just got to ask is it medically cleared to do and it is a subject that nobody really wants to talk about or probe into because of, it's quite personal, it's intimate. What's been your experience and what are your thoughts? And and if you were talking to Ria back then, what would you have said to her about how to engage possibly or how do you engage in these discussions about that?
0: In your assessment, I think it's something you definitely need to ask. Is that a concern, your level of intimacy and things like that? Because it it's human nature. It's part of our lifestyle. It's part of our form of connection, part of who we are. So. I think it's an important concept and it is a taboo topic. Like no one, <laughs> I remember when I was working in the, the pain management program and, and it was a group program. So used to have a topic and I used to be one of the lead physios and there was a mm-hmm. psychologist. We talked about intimacy and Everyone used to look at the timetable and make jokes and cringe about. Oh no, you know we got to talk about this, whatever. But every single person attended that session. (laughs) No one missed out. We we talk about how to pace during sex and how to build intimacy. No one, you know, lost focus. Everyone was concentrating. It was probably we used to have a laugh after saying this is the one session again you just got to look at okay objectively what do we need to do to make this pleasurable and you go through the the facts you know the actual the intercourse the ejaculation but that's only a very small part it's mm-hmm. it's the whole the intimacy component is the most important and that can be done well with pacing like we talk about uh, if you pace to a song you put some relaxing music in the background while you become intimate you change positions according to the size song. the so song changes or you know something along those lines And we even talk about even for some people just using a timer and everyone's like (laughs) giggles, but I said, well, that could be a real nice icebreaker for you when you're getting intimate and you're not sure if, because it's not just for the person with pain Mm -hmm. or the condition it's the partner as well and we used to do a session with the partners where they would actually say they're fearful of putting their significant other in pain ah okay because they don't know so you know we've we've sort of forgotten about the other person in all of this right yeah so and then we would explain to them how they can help the person in pain for example Mm -hmm. with positioning and postures to make it a better thing and when two people are contributing to it and helping each other, it's a lot more fun and and meaningful. How do I approach that subject?
1: In my initial assessment with somebody and I go through the hey, can you shower? Can you sit? Can yep. you transfer? Can you mow the lawn? Like, how do I just come out and ask that question? we
0: well, just going to say, you know, Ria, this could be a bit of a taboo topic, but is intimacy an issue for you uh, because of your condition?
1: Just come out and say it. Write that one down, everyone. That's that's a good one. <laughs> I'll put that in every INA template <laughs> in, in Workers' Call. I, I really appreciate that because, look, I, again, we're looking at a holistic person, right? We're looking at a bio psychosocial approach um, I'd, I'd love to see that in factor web actually and in all those other you know i don't think they even did i don't think they have that in OMPQ or the very familiar psychosocial things that we have yeah, no. it doesn't address that and i think i, I think there's probably another conversation and for another time as to what, why I,
0: uh, yeah and i think um if you can start talking about that what especially working in oc rehab like <laughs> you do I think what the client, the injured worker will see that you're not just about return to work. Yeah. You actually care about it. Because remember in that life trial, we talk about the personal life, the social life, social the life. vocational or voluntary life. Yeah. And so you as a, a rehab consultant talking about the social and personal life, not just the vocational slash voluntary life, mm-hmm. means that you actually care, I think. Because yeah. the perception is that, you're just there to get someone back to work, correct? So um, that's not necessarily what you were there for, but that's their perception uh, in most cases. So for you to then say, well, how's this part of your life? How's Mm -hmm. your social life? How are you getting out to meet people? Because that's equally important as going back to work. I think it's a really nice way to show them that you are a human being, that you're Mm -hmm. not just a rehabilitation consultant and that you care for this other person as a human.
1: I'm seeing more, more of that in industry where we start to talk about, um, you know, their home life, their social life, their hobbies. That's kind of just that extra little bit to really explicitly ask that question. I, for one, am going to start doing that from here on. And I think now that you've given me a script, Angel, I'm going to feel a little bit more comfortable <laughs> and my confidence will build, I'm sure. And this is for someone who's been in industry for 20 years. So thank you yeah. for that little tidbit of, a, of scripting and advice. I want to move on and I ask this question to everybody is if you were to see a utopian in your industry particularly in the work that you do, particularly, and I gave you a billion dollars, what's your billion dollar dollar idea, Ange?
0: Oh uh, I don't have a billion dollar idea, but I'd probably like to invest some of that into sustainable healthcare. Like mm-hmm. it's not just building a hospital, it's not just starting up a pain clinic or anything like that. I think we've got to look at ways of making healthcare more affordable. Is that looking at sustainable living to save money for people to then fund healthcare? Is it finding a way to offer the opportunity for some people to study and get a qualification? I think the most important thing is healthcare is becoming more and more expensive and I'm concerned when I'm retired whether I could afford healthcare if I needed it. I think, especially when you're in a vulnerable state in your late adult life, mm-hmm. there should be plenty of healthcare that you could access easily. And we're not seeing that today. Yep. And so. For me philanthropically I guess I'd like invest in sustainable healthcare if I could use that phrase.
1: Yeah.
0: Investing in you know startups or whatever that looks at sustainable healthcare is probably what I would like to do.
1: And and so as as we sort of start to to wrap I I wanted to ask you um what's something that you did recently that was only for you?
0: Ange? Uh, what did I do recently? That was only for me. I got myself a Harley. Oh, <laughs> that that'll be it. Oh, man. It.
1: That's, I'm uh, so jealous right now.
0: <laughs>
1: and I I think if you had advice for anybody who wanted to um, go into the type of work that you're doing into like chronic Pain management or even the way that you do your work what's your what would you say to to them
0: I uh, well. I think um, I think you know it's not. Uh, I, th- I think it's a great field to go, in and it'll certainly diversify your skills. But mm-hmm. it's not you know it's it's not a sexy field to go in for <laughs> any second. You know it's not sports physio and all this sort of stuff. But I think it's very rewarding. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of the work we do, we're not just. I always say it's not like fixing a body part. You're actually changing a life. And I know it sounds a bit cliche, but it's ex- it's actually what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're not there fixing a, a rolled ankle cool or a grade two medial ligament or something like that. You're you're actually helping someone's whole lifestyle and and you're changing Mm -hmm. their life and often we hear that from patients, you know, and clients that, um, yeah, that's what we've done. And so that there's an incredible amount of reward that comes out of that.
1: And so then how do you justify and measure your existence as a clinician? I mean, how do you, how do you measure changing someone's life? I mean, when we work in a, a field of tick the box and get the outcomes and yeah. here's the data, what's the data look like?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, the, <laughs> well, you get some lifestyle measures, you know, if they're getting back to work, that's great. Um, you know if they're playing with their kids again that's great mm-hmm. If they're able to watch a movie or go for dinner with their wife that's incredible you know I guess it's you know it's it's that holistic approach to, yeah. to measure but really I think for me as a therapist the, the fact that someone, it's not, you don't go and throw that around every day to say, Hey, listen, you changed my life. (laughs) Um, And, and so to hear that, it's quite, quite powerful. So, and certainly rewarding for the work you do Mm -hmm. because it's, it's not easy working in, the chronic illness space, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you know that, yeah. but um, but certainly can be incredibly rewarding. And we and we need people to work in this space. Um, yeah, you know, I,
1: and I think there's probably a lot of people who that I speak to have accidentally found themselves in that space. And so, if they want to learn more, and this is what I'm going to ask you to absolutely plug all your stuff because I've been through parts of your course. Your book, Beyond Pain, is just phenomenal. Did you want to just plug it? I just tell tell the world how awesome you are tell us where to find you
0: you can go to beyondpain.com.au and you'll see all our services and and on that shop page where i list all my courses and workshops so Mm -hmm. if anyone's interested they're all done via zoom we found that incredibly successful and and powerful because we can link people from all over australia and internationally we have people from new zealand England joining some of our sessions so it's it's real great discussion points yeah the book yeah it's a three-part book um the first part's about my personal journey Mm -hmm. the second part is about an understanding and educational piece just in real layman's terms there's no technical jargon or anything like that it was actually edited by a true crime best-selling author (laughs) who had nothing to do with Pain, but, medicine, but, anything like that. So that's why if it's so she
1: captivating. <laughs> if,
0: she, <laughs> if, she, if she didn't understand it, no one's going to understand it. So I'm um, incredibly grateful. For the time she put in. So, uh, and then the third part is a program that someone could follow if they didn't have access to our services. I'm pretty confident with the content in there that's appropriate and accurate.
1: And, Ange, any final words from you to the world?
0: Aim to get better. That's all that that I would say. Just work on being better.
1: (laughs) Ange, I so appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on to the Intelligent Rebellion podcast. Um, And for anybody who wants to get a hold of Ange, we'll have all his stuff in the show notes so thanks Ange
0: no worries thanks for having me
1: the Intelligent Rebellion podcast is a three-stick production it is produced written and hosted by me Ria Mercado Will is the emperor of sound mixing and editing and is a talent behind all our original music